the church. You know, I knew my daughter brought me this. I don't know why I looked and didn't see it there and not remember where it was at. The church. Over the last decade, probably actually over the last two decades, there have been more books written about the church than have been written since I first went to Lincoln Christian Seminary in 1971. I want to begin by saying I am concerned. I'm concerned. Not that I believe that the church is going to quit existing. Jesus said that the gates of hell would not be able to prevail against the church. And I've shared with you that that is a statement of offense, not defense. At least I shared with the Wednesday night group there in our Bible study. It's the gates of hell, not the gates of heaven, not the pearly gates. It's not that hell is bombarding the church. It's that the church is to be bombarding hell. We are to be the soldiers, the army, on the move. And so often we've just laid back, all worried about, oh, what, what's Satan going to do? And how are we going to stand up against this or that? You understand, don't you, that as a soldier of Jesus Christ, you have every bit of armor that you need to defend anything that comes against you. I'm concerned. And let me share a little bit with you about why I am concerned. A March 29th article of this year titled, U.S. Church Membership Falls Below Majority for the First Time. points out that Americans' membership in houses of worship across the board have continued to decline, dropping below 50% for the first time in any of Gallup's polls that they have been doing now for eight decades. That in 1937, when they first started doing these polls, church membership was at 73%. And it remained nearly 70% for six decades. But beginning in the 21st century, around the turn of the 21st century, it began to decline to now an all-time low of 47%. The interesting thing is, is that church membership is strongly correlated with age. 
66% of traditionalists, that's those adults born before 1945, still belong to a church. 58% of the baby boomers, that's those of us born between 46 and 64, still belong to the church. Actually, interestingly, 50% of the Generation X, 65 to 80, are still claiming membership in the church. But only 36% of the millennials, that's those born between 1981 and 1996, only 36% of that group claim membership. And the data for the Generation Z, which is actually, very few of them have actually reached adulthood yet, but their, their statistics are close to that of the generation or the millennials, I mean. Now, let me give you a side note to this. The decline in church membership appears largely tied to population change. With those in the older generations who were likely to be church members being replaced statistically in the population with the people in the younger generations. And in terms of the Christian churches and churches of Christ, I find this extremely alarming. Because what they consider high involvement is somebody who attends a service once a week and either a prayer meeting or scripture group at least once a month. I don't consider that highly involved myself. But even with that understanding of high involvement in the Christian churches and churches in Christ, our high involvement is down to only 44% of the people and with 47% claiming medium, which is attending church once a month, only 9% love. And I hope, I hope this morning that no, not one of us here as a congregation don't believe that we also are in that same sinking boat. I mean, look around, folks. Gene, how old are you? 27. We got Jordan and Jake. Next, we jump to Bridge and Cindy. My wife doesn't really fit in there because she's married to an old man. That's your daughter. We got my daughter. We are an aging congregation. And unless we begin to reach out to the younger people of this community and this area, First Christian Church of Brook will cease to exist. So you've heard my concern. 
Here's my question. What's our calling? Do we understand as the church what our calling is? I mean, I think Jesus made it pretty clear as He gave the Great Commission that our task is to make disciples. I've shared with you that the word go in the Great Commission is not a command, an imperative. It's a participle in the Greek. It's as you are going. In other words, as you're living your lives. Not, he's not just saying preachers, elders, deacons. He's addressing all of the disciples who were there in front of Him that day, of which the eleven were a part of that group. But He said, as you leave this mountain, as you're going back into your lives, make disciples. That is an imperative. And listen to me. He is not talking about counting conversions. Counting the number of people who said the sinner's prayer. Counting the number of people who signed a track at the end of the book. He's talking about making disciples. And the way we do this is we start communicating with the unchurched. We listen intently to what they're, they're needing. What they feel is the failure of the church. That's a part of our calling. I like the way that John Stott worded it in his book that, that I have available for you, The Living Church. He said our calling is to listen to the voices of the world in order to be able to respond to them sensitively, though without compromise. You know, when I read that, I was reminded of the words of Jesus, the real Lord's Prayer. You understand that the, the prayer that He gives in the Sermon on the Mount is a model prayer. That's not the real Lord's Prayer. The real Lord's Prayer is found in John chapter 17. And there in verses 15 and 16, He says to His Father, I do not ask that You take them out of the world, but that You keep them from the evil one. Or I highlighted evil because in the original text, there is no definite article. I don't think it should be the evil one. I think it should be translated that you keep them from evil. They are not of the world just as I am not of the world. As Christians, our task is not to be withdrawn from the world. We're not to be a bunch of hermits, recluse. But neither are we to be conformed to the world and thereby to be confused with the people of the world. I actually love the old King James Version translation of 1 Peter 2.9 in which Peter writes, we are to be a peculiar people. Now what he meant by that was a people who are committed to being holy, committed to being set apart, committed to being different, committed to being worthy, to be God's possession. Why do I think in any way that God wants to have me as a part of who He is if I am living in the muck and the mire of this world? 
He still loves me. But the Bible is very clear. He has no fellowship with darkness and sin. Our task is to remain in the world and in contact with the world, listening intently, maintaining witness to the truth by means of the help of the Holy Spirit. We're to be absorbing all of the malice that the world can muster. It doesn't bother me when somebody makes fun of me for being a Christian. I don't care if they point at some of the shirts that I have on. Because you know what? There are other people who see the shirt and they identify who I am. Now, I'll tell you what it calls for. When I'm wearing those polos that I had made that say First Christian Church, I know I better be living like somebody who is a member of First Christian Church. I don't want to disgrace, dishonor our church when I am wearing that shirt in any way, shape, or form. That's the prayer of Jesus. Our task isn't to condemn. And we've been so guilty of that. Pointing fingers. I remember years ago when a guy in the community where my dad was serving was the town drunk. And he made a decision to get away from that lifestyle. And one day, his car was parked in front of the bar. And somebody had the audacity. Somebody had the evil intent to speak negatively before they knew the facts. Oh, look, he's just gone back to his old ways. When the reality of the matter was, he heard that a friend was in there who was in fact intoxicated and he went to get him and pick him up and to help him get out. How quick we are as the church to kick our own soldiers when they're down. We need to be responding sensitively. Confronting that which is not the truth. Because listen, compromising regarding the truth is failure. Now, John Stott gives three assumptions in his book, and I highly concur with those three assumptions. And I want you to know that if you don't agree with those three assumptions, either you're not in the right place or I am not in the right place. And I'm open to either. If these assumptions don't fit us as a congregation, then we need to change. Or I need to leave. Because I think that we need to be of the agreement that we are committed to the church. That we are committed to the mission of the church. And that we are committed to the renewal of the church. If that's not our commitment as a body of believers, I don't belong here. And I mean that from the bottom of my heart. 
And the question that motivates me and has motivated me that caused me to even think about this series of sermons because you know for four years and June, July, August, three months, I have not preached a topical sermon series to you. Every one of my sermons has been an expository sermon through a book in the Bible. The question that motivated me and does motivate me is what is God's vision for us as His church? What is it that we can find in God's Word that would say, apart from all of the differences we encounter from church to church, what leads a person to say that certain items, that this or that, is what is in fact essential to the church? And so I've chosen as my text today the birth of the church. Acts chapter 2. Picking up with verse 37. And when they heard this, that is, when they heard the sermon that Peter had preached, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to Himself. By the way, that includes you and I. We are the ones who are far off. Not only in terms of distance, but in terms of chronology and time. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them. In other words, what we have in Acts 2 is not the totality of his sermon. <coughs> Saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. And awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And though all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and they're distributing to the proceeds to all as many as had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. May God add His blessing to our reading of the Word. Peter had just concluded his sermon. The first of the missionary addresses in the book of Acts. And in Peter's sermon, the element of scriptural proof dominates. Three major texts from the framework of his speech are Joel 2, Psalm 16, and Psalm 110. Now, let me give you this caveat before I continue. I believe firmly in the inspiration of the Bible. I believe that the Bible is the Word of God. But I do also believe that the Trinity is not God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Bible. 
The Trinity is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. That doesn't take away from my understanding of the importance of Scripture. But it reinforces to me the necessity that I rely upon the Spirit for guidance as I read and study and try to understand what God is saying to me in the Bible. And in what we have as the central section of this speech by Peter, Peter establishes that Jesus is the Messiah. And he goes back and uses Psalm 16 to point to His resurrection. A resurrection that vindicated who Jesus is. And then he goes to Psalm 110 to affirm His exaltation, His coronation as the King of the Kingdom. And finally, there's a call to repentance. And Peter's Jewish audience, the crowd, got the point. They were guilty of rejecting, even crucifying the Messiah. And Luke says they were cut to the heart or pricked in the heart. Using a somewhat uncommon word that the poet Homer had used to depict horses that were stomping the earth with their hooves. They were in emotional turmoil. Their guilt was overbearing. They needed to know what they had to do to bring relief from the situation in which they found themselves. And Peter's response presented them with four essentials. Four things that they could do or that they could be recipients of. And that's right, I said four essentials. Did you, by the way, notice that the assumption in this response is that they believed what they heard? Peter doesn't say when they ask, what, what shall we do? He doesn't say, well, just believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. It was obvious already that they believed. No. There were still four aspects beyond their belief that they needed to experience. And those were repentance. Baptism in the name of Jesus Christ. Being forgiven of their sins and the receipt of the Spirit. And listen to me. These four generally form a single complex. They are the normative ingredients in all of the conversions throughout the book of Acts. J. David Pawson puts it rather simply and straightforwardly. In a nutshell, I believe that the normal Christian birth consists of true repentance and genuine faith expressed and effected in water baptism with a conscious reception of the person of the Spirit with power. That Christian initiation is a complex of four elements. Repentance towards God, believing in the Lord Jesus, being baptized in the water, and having your sins forgiven and receiving the Holy Spirit. These four elements are found in the conversion accounts in Acts, though all four are not mentioned on every occasion. Essential. Look again in Acts 16. Same question. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? This is the account of Cornelius and his household. 
And the answer that is given by Peter at that time? Well, actually it says, they said. Not only Peter, but those who were with him were in agreement. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved, you and your household. And at this point, it couldn't be assumed. There was no demonstrable evidence that they were cut to the heart. The emotional stomping of their hooves hadn't existed. So he begins with, believe in the Lord Jesus. And what are they to do? Verse 33 says, And he took them the same hour of the night. It was so important that they didn't wait till the next day. They didn't wait till another Sunday. The same hour of the night, they washed his wounds, Paul's wounds, or excuse me, Peter's wounds, and he was baptized at once. He and all his family. On the day of Pentecost, 3,000 responded to the invitation given by Peter. And what does Luke say they did? Those who received the Word were baptized and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. Do I believe that somebody who's not been baptized by immersion can still make it to heaven. Yes. Because I'm not the judge. It's not my head. Because if for no other example, although it happens to be only one, the thief on the cross was told he would see Jesus in paradise that day and he wasn't baptized in water. Oh, he was baptized in pain and suffering and blood. But when somebody comes to me and asks me, what must I do to be saved? I give them the answer that is found in Acts 2 and in Acts 16. You need to believe. You need to repent. You need to confess. You need to be baptized by immersion in water. You need to receive the Holy Spirit. And you need to go on living the Christian life. I cannot shortchange the Scripture in any way, shape, or manner. But notice as the text moves on where we're headed. Verse 42 says, and they devoted themselves. The believers are said to have devoted themselves, a word that means to continue to do something with intense effort, with the possible implication of despite difficulty. They were determined that nothing would stop them as a gathering of believers from being a part of four practices in their new life together. In other words, we're talking about commitment. And I want you to know this morning, let me go back to my first two C words. I am very concerned. I am very concerned that we are not living up to our calling as the church because we are not truly committed to being the church. They committed themselves to a few things that brought them together in such a way that they grew spiritually and even numerically. And the first thing Luke mentions is that they were a learning church. 
the apostles' doctrine, the New Testament that we have, and their scriptures as well. Just as the apostles had been instructed by Jesus, so they passed along the instruction to the new Christians in keeping with Jesus' teaching to them. They would have included such subjects as His resurrection, the Old Testament Scriptures, the Christian witness, and surely their own reminiscences of Jesus' earthly ministry and His teachings. John Stott again has pointed out in another of his books that these early disciples didn't imagine that because they had received the Holy Spirit, somehow the Spirit's guidance was all they needed. That the only teacher they needed was somehow the Holy Spirit telling them what's in the Bible, that somehow they could dispense with human teachers. And I hear that all the time. All I need is my Bible. I can just read my Bible. I'm going to tell you something. I have studied the Word of God both as a person and academically more than anybody else sitting here this morning. And I need help a lot of times understanding what's exactly being said. No, on the contrary. They sat at the apostles' feet hungry to receive instruction. And they persevered in it with intense effort overcoming all difficulties. Oh, I don't have enough time. Man, it was a blessing last week, Diane. I've talked about it all week. I mean, I know that Jesse and I are sticking with our all-church reading plan. We do it every morning, and if we get behind, we catch up. But I don't know how many other people are reading so that they can read through God's Word this year with us. But to hear you say that you were so dedicated to it that you not only uh, had kept up with the schedule, but you got the whole Bible read already. I I've thought about that and talked about it to others all week long. What a blessing that somebody is willing to dedicate and devote time to reading God's Word. Listen, you can't know what God wants you to do and what God wants you to be if you don't read and study the Bible. Period. End of sentence. Exclamation mark. Amen. Preach it. Amen. Secondly, they were a caring church. They devoted themselves to the fellowship. The Lord uses koinonia. It expresses what we all share together. John the Elder writes about it in 1 John 1.3 when he says, Our fellowship, our koinonia, is with the Father and with His Son Jesus Christ and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. But secondly, John, I mean, it's also used by Luke to express what we share together horizontally as we give as well as we receive. Koinonia is the word that Paul used for the collection that he was organizing among the Gentiles, the monetary collection that they were going to take to Jerusalem to the brothers who were in need. And I know that that's a part of it because Luke goes on to say, right here in the text we read, all believers were together and had everything in common. Koinonia. Selling their possessions and good, probably meaning their real estate and their valuables, they gave to anyone who, had, who was in need. Now, that doesn't mean common 
ownership of all property. This isn't commune language. Because we know in the case of Ananias and Sapphira, their sin was not greed particularly. Their sin was not private ownership. Their sin was lying. They are told in fact, hey, before you sold it, wasn't it yours and your right to sell it or not? And once you sold it, wasn't it your right to say, I'm going to give this much or this much? Why did you lie by saying you sold it for this amount and you're giving all of that to the church? You didn't lie to people. You lied to God. And the effect of that was that they were struck dead immediately. I'm going to go on the record for saying that if God still acted in that way today, the church might not be in the shape it's in. If somebody came in here and I said to them, man, you lied to the Holy Spirit. Did you do this? Yes. Is this what you said? Yes. You know you lied to God? Yes. They dropped dead. Anybody else want to get up and go around lying to the Holy Spirit? Do you think once Eve took that bite of the apple and she said to Adam, here, go ahead and have a bite because the Lord said if we eat it, we're going to die. She dies. you think He's going to take a bite of that apple? I'll go one step further. Our nation is in the situation it's in because when somebody commits a horrible, despicable crime, it takes too long to get them to court and too long for punishment to be administered once they have committed that crime. We need to be caring about one another. We need to be. We are called to generosity, especially to the poor and those who are needy. Right there in Acts 2, they gave to anyone as he had need. There were no needy persons among them. When they sold their property, which they owned, it was distributed to anyone as they had need. Not wants, needs. And we've all been there as parents. Come on. I have one son who used to tell me, I need these shoes. I'd say, no, you don't need those shoes. You need tennis shoes. But you don't need the $200 pair. You want those. But you don't need those. Christian fellowship is Christian caring. And Christian caring is Christian sharing. Three. And I'm hurrying now. They were a worshiping church. They devoted themselves to the breaking of bread and prayers. I am so happy that I was raised in the household that I was raised in. Because I didn't miss a Sunday in church until I was 19 years old and had walking pneumonia. And it was only then that two of one of my roommates at college and another one in the hall said, no, we'll go get the dorm dad if you try to get out of bed. You're not going to church. We went to church even if we had to sit in the balcony or in an overflow room where there was a speaker. 
We did not absent ourselves from church for any reason. And when we travel as a family, we've attended churches all over this country looking up where's the nearest church that we can go to. They were a worshiping church. It was the breaking of the bread. The definite article is there. He's not talking about having a meal, although they had meals together in one another's homes. He's talking about the prayers. The definite article is there. He's talking about the Lord's Supper and the prayer services that they had together. There was an informal element, meeting together in each other's homes, and a formal element. There was an unstructured and a traditional. There was that which was spontaneous. They met with joy, and they were in awe. What's that saying to you? I'm saying to me, they were living a lifestyle of worship. It wasn't about just going to a building on Sunday morning. Nah, I can't keep, I can't stay off this soapbox today. Why would anybody think that they're going to be happy in heaven with the body of Christ if they think they're not happy on earth by being a part of the body of Christ, which is the church? There are a lot of people who never attend church. They get very aggravated if you question their membership. I, I know of churches where that happened, where they sent letters, nice letters. Are you still a part of us? Because they hadn't been there in over a year with no physical reason for not being there. Are you still a part of us? Or have you maybe gone somewhere else? People got mad because they were... The, the issue of whether or not their name was on the church roll was being questioned. Although they weren't even worried about being there. Come on, let's get real. Lastly, they were an evangelistic church. I know, it starts out by saying the Lord added, because you know what? You and I cannot add to the church. We can't do that. We can plant seeds. We can cultivate those seeds. We can water those seeds. We can make sure those seeds are getting plenty of sunshine. I know about that process. My office back here is a plant hospital. I've received plants from my wife and daughter. I've received plants from Kay. I work on them. I bring them back to life. I return them to their owner, hoping that they don't die. But I cannot do anything other than cultivate water, make sure they have sunshine. The Lord added. And when did He add? He added daily, day by day. Day by day. Now, I know that He was using the example of their lives. He was using their witness as they went out and told others about what was taking place. But you know what? One thing I do know, there was not the thought among any of those people, what's the least I have to do to be a Christian? You know why? Because the mere act of being baptized publicly meant that many of them, especially those who were in, in Eastern Europe, Asia Minor, they lost all rights to property. 
When they got baptized, they no longer owned anything or had the right to own anything. Are you willing to give up your house? Are you willing to give up everything you own because you are willing to publicly say, I will be a Christian? They were. You see, we're not committed. We're playing the game. And that's why the church in the United States is not growing, but it's dying. Guess where the church is growing? Right now, it's growing in Uganda. It's actually thriving in Afghanistan where whole churches are being martyred. Other people are saying if they're willing to give up their lives because of what they believe, there must be something to it. Yeah, I'm animated. I know it. I'm sorry. No, I'm not sorry. It's coming here. So here's my question. What rubric are you using what tool, what metrics, what guide, what grading system are you using to determine if your behavior, your performance, your understanding and effort toward what it means to be the church are what God wants? See, we need to be examining ourselves on a daily basis. The Scripture I read for you today, Paul says before you take communion, examine yourselves. And all of the things that we looked at are all about the community, about relationships. They were related to the apostles in submission. They were related to each other in love. They were related to God in worship. And they were related to the world by means of their outreach. Our responsibility is to humble ourselves before God's authority. So what rubric are you using as you consider what you are doing individually to fulfill God's call? And what are you doing as a part of the church to make sure that the church is doing that? Does it include a commitment, a devotion to learning, to worshiping, to evangelism, to caring? Let's pray. Father God, we come before You today. And it's time. It's time for us either to commit ourselves to being the church or to throw in the towel and quit wasting the tithes and offerings that are given for the advancement of the kingdom. Help us to commit ourselves to learning to caring, to worshiping, and to reaching the unreached, the unchurched. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Let's stand together and let's sing our hymn of commitment. Trust and obey.